Good morning again, church family. If you have a Bible, you can please turn to Acts chapter 8. As you're turning your pages to Acts chapter 8, I'm going to take your mind to John chapter 4. While the gospel writer in John chapter 4 tells us and points us out and points out how Jesus passed through the land of Samaria, the text says. In fact, actually, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. And that statement in John's gospel was meant to mark more than a geographical location. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were viewed as traitors, half-breeds, honestly, who had intermarried with the Assyrians, a hated people by the Jews, and crossing over all the social, religious, and political boundaries of the day, Jesus enters Samaria and he has a spiritual conversation with a, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, but an outcast Samaritan woman. And as Jesus began engaging her, she poses the theological question, dividing, uh, defining the deep and long-standing division between the Jews and the Samaritans. She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say, speaking of the Jewish, of the Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. The Jews and the Samaritans had, drew, had, had drawn differing conclusions regarding where the, the, uh, what was the place chosen for the temple to have been built. The Jews obviously understood it to be Jerusalem, while the Samaritans Mount Gerizim. Driven by religious and theological animosities, the Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage based solely on the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest. And because of this, they rejected God's instruction to Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans believed that Shechem, overlooked by Mount Gerizim, was the proper place of worship, hence where their temple was. And this had been and still was a a contentious, dividing issue amongst the Jews and the Samaritans. So perceiving Jesus to be a prophet, she said, she sort of lobs this explosive question into his lap. And Jesus answers with, could be the most important statement in the Bible regarding worship itself. He said, the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship me. Jesus is saying an event is about to take place. Namely, namely my death for sin, my resurrection and my ascension into heaven in which worshiping the Father will no longer be dependent upon any geographical location. It will be dependent upon an event and a person, namely himself, is what he's saying. And upon revealing himself as the Messiah to this woman, this, she goes back to her town, the text says, and she, she tells everyone this good news. The Messiah has come even to Samaria. And it says there that some, uh, that, that in this, that, that some even came and began to come back and listen to Jesus. So, in one sense, the Samaritans knew the message of Jesus was for them. But what did it mean? How was the true worship of the Father in spirit and in truth going to come about? How would this divide be overcome by this Jewish man? Well, those questions are answered for us this morning in Acts chapter 8. For the first time in Acts chapter 8, the message of the gospel is going to go forth beyond Jerusalem and into Samaria. And it's going to be, re- re- it's going to be preached And it's going to be received and it's going to teach us that through the power of the gospel, the church triumphs over all man-made divisions. And in so doing, welcomes the outcast. Through the power of the gospel, the church triumphs over all man-made divisions and it welcomes. And by so doing, it welcomes the outcast. I'll read our text this morning. I know last week I couldn't do that with the length of it. I'll make sure that happens this morning, but we will still take it apart in chunks. I have a full chapter to go through this morning. We're going to deal with all of chapter 8. But I want to simplify it a bit because it really contains just two scenes. 
Now this morning, we're going to get kind of a summary statement to begin, as Luke does in the book of Acts, and we're going to get two scenes. Both of those driven, or both of those involving a man named Philip, one of the seven who was chosen alongside Stephen uh, to, to help with the food distribution back in chapter 6. All right. And the first thing we see, the first point that we see here, the first idea is that we, we look first at a, at a church that triumphs in verses 1 through 17. First 17 verses, we see a church uh, triumphing over persecution, yes, but also man-made divisions that have been set for thousands of years. The opening line of verse 1 is meant to make a definite statement to us. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. Last week we dealt with Stephen's death and all that took place. We saw there that it said the men who stoned Stephen to death laid their garments at the feet of this man named Saul. So Stephen's death was not looked down upon by the Jewish leadership. It was approved by them and particularly was approved by Saul, who will later become the great apostle Paul. And this approval, the text says, really sets ablaze a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, resulting in them being scattered from the city. Look at it there. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, last phrase, except the apostles. Satan and his forces of evil persist in their attack upon God's new forming people, the church. And Saul is depicted here as serving as an instrument in the hands of Satan for his attack. Verse 3 outlines the brutality of Saul's persecution. Verse 2 says, devout men buried Stephen. And they made great lamentation over him. So while there's mourning going on, then we see next, but Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul's cold-hearted hatred led him to drag both men and women from their homes, dismantling families in the process and throwing them into prison where many would meet their death. Some mourn the loss of a friend. Saul is here ravaging the church. There's no other really way to say it, but uh, a religious terrorist aiding and abetting the murder of God's people is where the Apostle Paul's testimony begins, right here in the text. That should sink in for us. A violent persecutor of the church is how he described himself in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. The great pillar of the New Testament church whom God called to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations, Romans 1 tells us, begins right here. Do you believe in that power of the gospel, brothers and sisters? Is that how you tend to pray for people in your life? Or do you, like me, often write people off? They're too far gone. God can't get a hold of them. They're too entangled into sin. There's no hope for them. The life of Paul reminds us that God can and does do far abundantly than all we can ask or think in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to believe that, church. Are there situations in your life right now Are there struggles in your soul right now that you have accepted will never be overcome? Never be resolved because you believe. Well, you might not say, God is not able to do that. God is not able to bring that sort of transformation. God's not able to bring that sort of resolution and that regeneration. If so, repent this morning and look to Saul. Saul's a terrorist turned apostle, is what we see in our text. And now Satan, he has clearly misplayed his hand here. And instead of smothering the gospel, as one author says, his attacks succeed only in spreading it here. The church is scattered. But it is sovereignly scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You see, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is the outworking of Acts chapter Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, Jesus promised. Starting in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
Persecution propels the mission of the church forward. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Like the rest of this chapter demonstrates the power of the gospel going beyond Jerusalem, just as Jesus promised. And this happens, the church triumphs as a result of perse- the persecution of God's people. Here is evidence again, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom of God operates on an entirely different economy than the kingdom of man. We must focus our eyes to pay attention with kingdom eyes or we'll miss things. The last are made first in the kingdom of God. The weak are made strong through the kingdom of God. And victory comes by way of apparent defeat to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the exalted Lord because He was the suffering Son. The church triumphs in the face of and by way of persecution and suffering. If we know our Bibles, we know the church is at its best, we might say. The church is most effective in the world when it's pushed down, overlooked, experiencing difficulty. Pray for the church, but do it with kingdom eyes. See the church today with kingdom eyes. This also means, again, personally for you, that the darkest and deepest, most desperate places in your lives, when God feels most distant from you, believer, is where, in fact, He may want to do His most important work. Now, the text is clear, though, that as they were scattered, they did not hide. They did not maintain silence. They went about preaching the word. The CSB translates this as, on their way they preached the word. NIV adds, wherever they went they preached the word. So it's, wherever they were scattered, they went about preaching. And our word preaching here can be a bit misleading in the text. We hear that word, I think our minds tend to go to something more formal like what I am doing this morning. And no doubt there is a formal sense of that word in the, in the New Testament. We looked at that a few weeks ago, which really up until this point uh, has applied directly to the apostles. If we go back just to Acts chapter 6, remember, this in fact, this ministry of the word was being threatened in the dispute over the widows, in the apostles, I don't think this is solely what they were saying, but, but particularly one thing they were, were getting at was this ministry of the word in terms of preaching and the ministry of the word of praying and delivering the word to the people was being threatened. When Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy to preach the word, he's speaking more of this formal sense. Words are used interchangeably, but the word often used there for preaching in that sense is heralding. The word translated here is where we get our word evangelism from. It is in fact the verb form of the word gospel, euvangelion. Sharing the gospel or speaking the good news is the idea here. If I could state it overly simplistic or overly literal, I would say, we could interpret verse 4 as saying, wherever they went, they went gospeling. They went good newsing. They were conveying the good news of Jesus. So the scattering of Christians resulted in the scattering of the good seed of the gospel. And this is evangelism in the life of the body. And it's especially important we see this given what the end of verse 1 said. Go back and look at that last phrase at the end of verse 1. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they, began, and they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles, for some reason, have stayed back. Their responsibilities maybe had them to stay back. So if we place, I think, this text alongside the text of Acts chapter 6, with the apostles upholding their role of preaching and Prayer, kind of in a formal sense, I think we see a healthy expression of the mission of the church on display here. A church that merely sits under the Word is not a faithful church. The ministry of the Word that begins in the gathering, as what we're doing this morning, is meant to reverberate down and throughout the body and then out into the community. As we are going... Where we go about, 
We are to gossip the gospel, as John Stott says. A healthy church sits under the preach word on Sunday, but then scatters throughout the week carrying the word, gospeling the word, wherever we go. So the triumph of the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Really, the obedience to the command of Jesus comes about as the result of persecution and the evangelism of the body at large, not the apostles. And the the church's triumph, though, continues in verse 5. The rest of chapter 8 serves as Luke's way, I think, of maybe double-clicking on verse 4, providing two examples of maybe what this evangelism of the scattered church looked like, particularly through, again, this man named Philip. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being uh, said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he had did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had, who had, who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in this city. Philip goes down to the town of Samaria and proclaims Jesus. It's a rather shocking statement in and of itself. But then the text says the crowds responded positively to his message. With one accord they paid attention to his message, it says. And again here we see the supernatural signs and wonders present, not just with the apostles, with Philip here, but we see them again serving the ministry of the Word, serving as means for the message to go forth. And verse 8 concludes by stating how Philip's very visit produces much joy in Samaria. This is a shocking scene. As I mentioned, um, Samaria was separated socially, geographically, theologically, ethnically, religiously from the Jews. Samaria was the other side of the train tracks in every way. But joy has now come to Samaria by way of a Jewish man named Philip. But that work of joy is here interrupted just for a moment through this figure named Simon, who Luke pauses and reminds, who, who rewinds and kind of rewinds a bit to introduce. Verse 9, But there was a, a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. The language here is really important. Listen to the way Luke sets it up. Saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, This man is, is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So Simon had previously had captivated the Samaritans by his magic, his sorcery, to the point he was considered great amongst the people. Simon had duped everyone in believing this was the power of God amongst them. And twice it says they paid attention to him. The exact phrase Luke just used to describe their response to Philip's preaching. I think there lies the real issue here. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, there's a contrasting there, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So upon hearing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, the Samaritans, they forsake their fascination with Simon's magic and believed in Jesus. Both men and women are baptized as a confession of their faith. And look at verse 13. Luke's alluding to something here. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles perform, he was amazed. There's that word again. So I think Luke is quick to point out Simon's amazement with the miracles that Philip performed, somewhat tipping his hand as to something not being right here. But in verse 14, we see how word gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem about Samaria. So they send Peter and John to check things out. Now when the apostles apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles 
willingness to pray for the gift of the Spirit suggests their belief that a work of God had truly taken place here. But it also kind of reveals that something is missing. But it's, no, it's important what they don't do. Instead of preaching the gospel or maybe correcting some bad theology or some misunderstanding, they do none of that. Peter and John place their hands upon the Samaritans, and when they do, the text says they receive the Holy Spirit. The question we should ask is, why is this even needed? Why had the Holy Spirit not yet come upon any of them, and yet they are described as already believing? Are we to conclude there was something deficient in the Samaritans? There seems to be no indication of that in the text, and the text seems to point in the opposite direction of that. So what is going on here? I think it's important that I think this is another one of those difficult passages in the book of Acts. We've dealt with a few of them. But it's another one of those passages that I think requires us, calls us to use our interpretive lens again that we've been thinking about, asking the question of this text, is this text describing something unique in redemptive history, not meant to be repeated, or is it prescribing normal Christian living? And that is a really important question on this text particularly because for entirely differing reasons, Pentecostals, at least some in that tradition, and Roman Catholics use this text as giving warrant for a regular, normal, two-stage initiation into the Christian faith. Roman Catholics teach that for the first step or stage as being, as being baptism And then the second being the confirmation of the bishop through whose imparting of his hands the Holy Spirit is given. So you're baptized and then the the bishop lays his hands upon you and the confirmation of that, the imparting of the Holy Spirit comes. Many Pentecostals, on the other hand, teach conversion, regeneration as being the first step, true, repentance, belief, you're regenerated, you're born again. And then there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, often accompanied by speaking in tongues, which follows. Both of those traditions use this text as warrant for their belief. So does this text prescribe to a two-step process meant to be normalized and repeated? Or is it merely describing something unique in redemptive history Luke wants us to see? I think the context, brothers and sisters, clearly supports the latter. So first, if we were just to back up, Peter taught in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus will have their sins forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There seems to be no understanding of two, a two-step two process in the apostles' mind in Acts chapter 2. Even evidence of that is the way in which he calls them to repentance and says they receive the Holy Spirit. All right? But Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you might want to write that text down. It says clearly, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So to say one is a believer and and regenerate at baptism, but does not receive the Holy Spirit until a second baptism or the confirmation of a bishop, that does not square with the rest of the New Testament. It doesn't square with Romans chapter 8, verse 9, especially. And the phrase, for he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen in verse 16, is Luke's way of indicating this situation is not normal. In other words, it needs some explanation here. And the explanation needed is due to the fact that this was the first time that the gospel message had been proclaimed outside of Jerusalem. And in Samaria especially. This is clearly the importance of this story and where Luke is pointing us to pay attention to. The Samaritan division had lasted for centuries. But now, due to this persecution, the gospel is being preached and responded to even amongst the Samaritans. What would happen? Would this schism be settled? Or would it set in and persist in the church, creating two factions of Christians who worship God in differing ways? This is a serious moment in the life of the church and her mission in redemptive history. So it seems God deliberately withheld the Spirit until the apostles were present to avoid such a disastrous situation 
and to communicate something essential regarding the church and the people of God. This was a clear demonstration to the Samaritans beyond all shadow, beyond any shadow of a doubt that they were really equal members of the church and co-heirs of the kingdom of God. As one author says, an unprecedented situation demanded quite exceptional methods. This scene confirms the church's mission of advancing the message of Jesus beyond Jerusalem through Samaria to all the nations. Our very next text is going to be an Ethiopian eunuch who receives the gospel. Pay attention to what Luke's doing here. Jesus passed through Samaria, illustrating how the identity of God's people is not going to be determined by any sort of man-made division, but through the power of the Spirit at work in His people. There are no second-class citizens in the church. The Word is demonstrated to be effective here. Thousands of years of division, religious animosity, theological fighting, bigotry is overcome by the power of the Gospel here. The Spirit overcomes boundaries that the temple only served to substantiate. In the power of the Gospel, they're removed. The church triumphs here, making clear that worship of the Father is not determined by a place. It's not reserved for a particular group of people. But it's found through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Gospel. So we see here that the church triumphs over persecution and it triumphs over these man-made divisions, all man-made divisions. We want to look next at this faith that fails in verses 18 to 25. We kind of have this parenthesis in the, in the text here, but it's an important one. Luke now returns. He explained. He kind of re, rewound and told the story, uh, at least spelled out who Simon was. And now he kind of returns to show us the failure of his faith here. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So seeing the power at work through the apostles laying out of hands, Simon's his heart is really exposed here. Viewing the apostles, I think nothing more is holding some sort of magical power like him. He attempts to purchase the Spirit's power. The Spirit of God seems to be something of a commodity to Simon. It's something that can be purchased, controlled, even sold. Peter won't stand for this. Verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And you neither, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter rebukes Simon. He says to perish with his money. Literally, Peter is telling him to hell with you and your money. And his actions, Peter says, demonstrate a heart that's not right with God. And one which cannot share in the things of God. And Peter calls him to repentance. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He said these actions expose the heart of Simon, he's not a believer. He went through these actions. He stood with the people. He was baptized. He's not a believer. He's in the gall of his bitter. He's bound and enslaved to his iniquity still. And Peter calls Simon's attention not just to his actions though, but where? To his heart. That's where true repentance and forgiveness is to be found. And Simon Answer, sadly, verse 24. He doesn't do anything Peter tells him to do. Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, there's no commentary here on how that's interpreted, so this is more of my interpretation in itself, but it seems to be what Simon is saying here is pray for him that the consequences would be removed. And he don't want the consequences, but he's not repenting before the Lord. He's not laying his heart before the Lord. He just doesn't want to receive the consequences of being caught and doing something dumb. That's a totally different thing, brothers and sisters. 
There's a whole practice referred to as simony. Buying or selling of something spiritual, which really comes out of this text from church history. Whether it's buying or selling indulgences from the church and church history as a means of removing guilt, the church in a season would sell indulgences for themselves or maybe relatives who have gone before you and you could have their sins removed. Or maybe today, televangelists and prosperity preachers promising to sell people blessings or give them a place in the kingdom, they all serve as demonic distortions of the gospel. Just as the Spirit of God cannot be controlled or procured, neither can He be purchased by either silver or gold, by good works, by religious activity. The gospel is a message of grace. Romans three twenty three twenty seven says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A clear statement, all, and we justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That message of God's grace as a gift through the person and work of Jesus is being threatened here by Simon's false teaching. Peter calls him to repent. As we think about this text, like we can probably readily identify, I saw heads nodding and amens, we can readily identify with maybe things we've heard in the past, indulgences and things like that, and we can readily identify prosperity preachers and things like that. But I want to submit to you that we probably all have a little simony in our heart. Just my short time of being here at this church, pastoring for five years, I know of multiple people and faces of people who showed up to this church. They start coming, they're getting involved, you get to know them, you sit down and pray with them, and you hear there's big things going on in their life on the horizon. I'm thinking of one, there was a court case coming soon. They knew that was coming. There was consequences to things that were on the horizon that could typically go bad. And they would come. They would involve themselves. They were here to pray. They were here for everything. But then that case turned out in their favor. And they're gone. Haven't seen them since. Ain't heard a word from them. That's simony. That's playing with the Lord. That's trying to persuade the Holy Spirit to be on your side for something by your good works, by your attendance, by your activity in the church. And while that story might be a little strong for you, I do believe there's some of that in all of us. We tend to believe that we're saved by grace, but then we walk in the Christian life trying to earn something from the Lord. Believing that we can sort of manipulate the Lord, manipulate the Spirit to be especially present in our life and do things for us if we fill in the blank. I've got to get back to serving to going to church. I've got to get back to doing these things in my life. I've got to do more of this. And all those things might be good, and you might need to do all of those things. But not in terms of trying to earn something or persuade God to do something, but because of what God has done for you in Christ, if you know Him. The Gospel is a message of grace. And Simon here is manipulating that reality. He's trying to persuade and thinks he can move and use the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord as a commodity in his life. We need to be careful of that and repent if we see that in our lives. Verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We'll get down to the third one in a minute, but three times, I'm just pointing it out here, Luke's going to kind of summarize with a statement like that, the preaching of the gospel. I want to look at verse 26 through 40 here. Lastly, is the gospel that welcomes, I see. So we see a church that triumphs, a faith that fails, and then a, a gospel that welcomes. Philip's qualifications for leadership, which we saw in chapter 6, was him being wise or being of good repute and of spiritual discernment he was supposed to have. They're now going to be used by the Lord to welcome a most unlikely candidate into the kingdom. Being sensitive, I think, to the Spirit's work, an angel of the Lord calls... To Philip in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Verse 27, and he rose and went. Philip, I think, possesses um, a faithful obedience that we should pay attention to and seek to emulate. Philip has just taken the gospel to Samaria. He's overcome 
at least through the preaching of the gospel, God has used him to overcome this long-standing divide. And literally the entire city has been turned upside, for, upside down for Jesus. And now he's told, rise and go and go to the desert. Simon could have easily been like, you know, angel, do you know who I am? Like, did you see what just happened? We see none of that in the text. He's asked to go south to a desert place. And verse 20 says, he arose, he went faithfully, obediently. Joyful, effective ministry for the kingdom demands humble submission to the Spirit of God. Philip demonstrates that here. It says here in verse 27, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. That is a loaded two verses there. Luke does not mention this man's name at all. We don't even know this dude's name. But he doesn't give us a whole lot about him that he wants us to pay attention to in the identity of this man. He says he's first described as an Ethiopian. His his ethnicity is African. And second, he's a eunuch. He's a man, but an emasculated man. He's an outcast, socially and sexually. Eunuchs were both prized and demonized in the culture for the same reason. Their sexual inabilities. They posed no threat to leadership, especially female leadership. So they were prized for that, but they were demonized for it as well. That probably explains why he is a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Probably tells us why he was in charge of all her treasure. So this man is a peculiar mix, and Luke is setting that before us. He's an African eunuch considered unclean and unable to enter the temple in Jerusalem. He was sexual and social outcast, and yet at the same time, he's well-to-do. He's in charge of all her treasure. He's also a God-fearer, at least we know that, or a Gentile marginally connected to Judaism. And he's, he's he's coming here from worshiping in Jerusalem, and oddly enough, he's reading... The prophet Isaiah, verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join that chariot. My mind goes to just this picture here. I don't know, maybe that's my childish mind, but what did that look like? Philip running alongside this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can discern his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now interestingly, Philip doesn't ask I mean, this this man doesn't ask Philip for like some general explanation of the passage. He asks him very directly, who is this passage referring to? And we know that there were competing theories of who this suffering servant from Isaiah was. And apparently he had heard some of these debates. Maybe he had just heard them from his recent visit in Jerusalem. He wonders, who is this? Philip doesn't wonder. Verse 35. And Philip opened his mouth. And he began with, the script, with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. Before maybe looking at Philip's message, it could be important to just point out his method here. Philip didn't just drive in with a message. Philip listened. Philip inserted a key question which provided him the opportunity to present Jesus here. Listening, brothers and sisters, is a ministry of the Holy Spirit as well. It takes a person full of the Spirit to listen well and ask the right questions as much as it does to speak forth the message of the gospel. But Philip does speak the message of the gospel. And it says he does here, beginning from this scripture, Luke tells us, From one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, concerning Jesus. And yet, 
Luke's reading, I mean, I mean this, this man's reading, Luke tells us, a, a rather obscure section of that passage. If you were to share the gospel with someone from Isaiah 53, I'm going to preach Isaiah 53 over through our Advent series. I'll preach this portion of the text, but this ain't going to be the main portion of my text. It's probably not where you would begin. Not be the key places you would focus in on. But it's this portion he is reading from and from which the text says Philip begins his gospel message. He probably went to other places for sure, but he begins here. And the context of Isaiah 53 concerns an individual who suffers for sin. But not just sin, an, an individual who suffers for the sins of others. He's rejected by and for his own people, but because of that, the text says he's exalted. And the emphasis in, the, in this portion listed is the suffering servant's humiliation. That's what it says. This suffering servant is rejected and led before a shear, one who cuts him. And the humiliation and rejection of Jesus through his death upon the cross had to be felt by this eunuch. It had to be what Philip was laying before him. He probably did not choose to be a eunuch, this man. It's possible he was. But probably he was not. He was probably publicly humiliated unjustly and left in this state to serve in this way his whole life. And Philip reveals to him the one who was humiliated far more and on far more unjust terms for him. Jesus, the righteous Son of God, would be unjustly killed and humiliated upon the cross to purchase the redemption of His people from all nations and to welcome them into His beloved kingdom even from Ethiopia. And apparently this message sits with His soul and in stark contrast to Simon, who will not repent, this Ethiopian eunuch, who we don't even know his name, repents and trusts in Christ. Verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? A very simple question. But I do think a simple question that contains an infinite amount of gospel truth. But it's also interesting that, that this was the Ethiopian's response in the first place to be baptized. I think it speaks to the importance of baptism in the early church. Christians were known for baptism. This man understood this next step to be baptism. Revealing his, on some level, his understanding that baptism was the means by which he was to identify with the Lord Jesus and identify with his church. So he asked, what prevents me from being baptized? And here's where I think it's really important we remember Luke's strategic description of this man. He doesn't give us a name. He says he's an Ethiopian, an African, and a court official to the queen of Africa, a eunuch. Religiously speaking, in terms of the kingdom of man, everything about him prevented him from coming. His whole, his whole description of who he is is meant to tell us that. But in the gospel, nothing prevents him. But his faith. This is the gospel message. While there is nothing in us that makes us worthy of coming to the Lord, there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to manipulate the Lord, to persuade Him to open up the kingdom of heaven for us. There's nothing also that prevents us except our lack of faith. We too are outcast. We too are unclean. We too are unworthy to be in the presence of God due to our sin. But by faith in the person and work of Jesus, nothing prevents us. No past sin. No lack of ability. No distinction in our culture. No ethnic, no social boundaries. We're brought near by the blood of the Lamb. And that verse is illustrated in verse 38. 
No hesitation is found on Philip's part. They commanded the chariot stop. They both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. As a Baptist, I would be remiss not to say they both went down into some water. They both came up out of some water. Doesn't mean I'm, our understanding of baptism is necessarily altogether right, but you've got to deal with that text because it seems pretty clear they went down in the water together. They could have took some water from that pool and poured it on someone's head. Seems like they both went down, they both went up. But nothing... Philip could have said all kinds of things here. What prevents me? Well, man, you know, like, you are a eunuch. And you are not from Jerusalem. And I'm glad you're a God-fearer. So we have a place for you, I think, in the kingdom, but it'll be in the back row. Second-class citizen. And he says, no, stop the chariot. This man wants Jesus. Let's get him wet. Let's identify him with the Jesus that he says he knows. And he's baptized. And he's entered into the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to every one of us in this room that we too, in Christ, there is a welcome to us into the kingdom. None of us are welcomed in ourselves. None of you are welcomed in and of yourself. If you think you're trying to earn your welcome into the kingdom of God by your activity, that door is slammed in your face. You are not welcome in and of yourself. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death, through His resurrection, through His life-giving work, through the shedding of His blood, the forgiveness of sins, we're not just told it's up to us to come into the kingdom. You're allowed now to work hard and try to get into the kingdom. We're welcomed into the kingdom. To sit at the table with the Lamb. The message of God's grace is going forth here. I want to show you the last verse here. Chapter 8, verse 40. Look at it. Philip found himself at Azotus. And he passed through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Three times Luke's done that. He did it in verse 25 and 26, 25. And he did it in verse 4. So 4, 25, and 40. It's interesting here, this, this narrative, it's, it's kind of been hard to think about this week, preaching it, because it's three kind of distinct stories that are intentionally, I think, stretched apart. You've got these Samaritans who were outcasts below you got this preaching of the gospel on a kind of a, a broad sense to them. That's what Philip does. He kind of preaches more probably than what I'm doing here. He kind of preaches to a crowd. And then you got this Ethiopian eunuch who's riding along in a chariot, and Philip runs up next to him and has a conversation with him, kind of more personal evangelism. You got an African, you got Samaritans, you got Jewish division, you got then you got Simon in the middle who's so-called magician, rejecting, and all these things are happening. But in the midst of all of that, it's all tied together through the preaching of the gospel. As Luke wants us to see here. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The, the, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The gospel will go forth. The church will triumph through the preaching of the gospel and the power of God's word. So Luke's pointing us to. He's pointing us to see that church and to be faithful. I can't leave it all out there on the table, but there's so much application here for evangelism in our life. See how Philip did not allow cultural, social things in our world, man-made divisions that we have a myriad of in our world. He did not keep him from any way of sharing the gospel. He knew the message of the gospel was the power to break down all of those. And he preached it. And he was faithful to not only listen to the Spirit's calling to go to the desert. He was faithful to listen and listen to the heart of this man. To not see him by the way that the world sees him. All the ways in which the text laid out. That's a typical way he saw it. He didn't see him the way he saw him through the eyes of God. 
It's a man who needs the gospel. He listened, heard his heart, and shared from him the Jesus that he needed. It's a message for us as well, church. So the church does triumph, will triumph, through the power of the gospel over man-made divisions. And it welcomes us. This is who we are. This is our message. The gospel is a message that welcomes the outcast. How do we know that's true? Because we were outcasts. We've been welcomed to the table. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for... There's a speed in which the book of Acts is moving faster. I feel it. I see it as we're going through. And Lord, that's a good thing. We're seeing the, the ministry. We're seeing the gospel uh, prevail to go forth. The church triumphing. But God, let us not run past things too quick. Pay attention here. Remind us here the truth that persecution is what propelled the church forward. Difficult things in our life is often where God wants to do some important work. We're afraid of those things, Lord. Remind us not to run from those issues in our life. To see them with kingdom eyes. When we're weak, you make us strong. And God, help us to see and question our our hearts and confess to you how we do often try to manipulate you. We do play games. There's simony in our heart, Lord, and forgive us. We feel really good with the Lord when we've so-called done what we think is well. And then we feel distance when we've moved away. But God, remind us the truth that if, it had, if, it was, if the gospel was dependent upon us in any way, we would not know you. There'd be no hope. Help us to trust in the power of the Spirit. And God, do help us to see where the gospel takes all of the things that we've, de- we've decided in this world keep us from the Lord and welcomes us through the gospel, through Jesus. Help us to trust in the person, the work of Jesus. Help us to see people not as Ethiopians, not as eunuchs, not as officials, but as people who need Jesus, whom that we can preach the truth of the gospel to. God, use our church to be a church that gospels the gospel, a church that shares that wherever we go, we see our opportunities to preach the truth of the message, to make you known. And God, we thank you for the truth of your word, even this morning. Let it fall upon us and let us do as we said. Let it start here this morning as we're gathered. Let it reverberate in our hearts, reverberate in our homes, reverberate throughout our community this week. But then, Lord, let it affect the way we walk out into this world, the way we go to work, the way we see our neighbors, the way we engage friends. Show them Jesus. Proclaim Jesus to them. God, use our faithfulness the sake of your great name. In Jesus' name.